This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Is there anything bleaker than that third dial tone? Naturally, it's the fourth dial tone, of course. Because while one and two are promising and three was terrifying, you know what is coming next. Hi, this is Anna. Please leave a message. Hi, you've reached the cell phone of Theo Wells Backman. Please leave a message and a number at which you can be reached, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you. Hi, you've reached the phone of Tommy Goulding. I'm not here right now, so please leave me a message and I'll try to get back to you. Thank you. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Yet there's something in our spirit, some indomitable quality that wants to be heard and to hear, which means that it's pretty rare to call someone once and not call again, even if you know that after two or three dial tones, you're just going to get their voicemail because it's the promise that makes us want to keep going, that, that makes us resilient. Hi. Hey, Malika. Any ETA for that story for the resilience episode? Yeah, I'm working on it now. I think it's really easy to, to argue for resilience, to be that voice that says, well, if you don't succeed, then try, try again. But it's another thing to turn those words into action to be resilient, to be the one who, when the going gets tough, really does get going. Because whether it's for personal growth or for greater social change, the ones who make change are the ones who keep trying. Today on News & Culture, stories of resilience, stories of those who kept going. First up on News & Culture, Alan Plotz and Claire Kaneshiro explore the intricacies of the American asylum system with Gabriel Samkam Vargas, a Princeton University student and human rights advocate. Next on News & Culture, Raina Koulibaly explores how fiber artistry has woven the lives of Black women together for centuries. Malika J. Singh speaks about the importance of persistence in a marathon-length friendship. And finally, Alan Plotz and Claire Kaneshiro learn more about living and surviving in residential youth treatment centers, commonly known as the troubled teen industry. Stick around. We'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. First up on News & Culture, Alan Plotz and Claire Kaneshiro explore the intricacies of the American asylum system with Gabriel Samkam Vargas, a Princeton University student and human rights advocate. And then I had to show up to an interview by myself and an interpreter because I did not speak English at the time and basically prove to the U.S. government why I was worthy of protection. That's Gabriel Samkam Vargas describing just one part of his arduous journey 
from Nicaragua to apply for asylum in the United States. Today, he's a freshman at Princeton University studying molecular biology. We sat down with Gabriel to hear more about his experience with asylum. This is Claire Konashiro and Alan Plotz for WPRB 103.3 News and Culture. This comes at a time when questions of immigration are increasingly on people's minds, as states like Texas, whose governor, Greg Abbott, has sent buses of undocumented immigrants to New York City in a performative political move, and as the United States judicial system has nearly two million currently pending immigration cases, twice as many as in 2019, immigration is clearly on our collective conscience. But what is this process like for migrants? Gabriel has a somewhat unique experience, given that he arrived in the United States as an unaccompanied minor. In 2018, the Nicaraguan government imposed a series of reforms on uh, retirement and social security, which led thousands and thousands and thousands to protest. And that was the first time I um, had a chance to become an activist. I joined protests in my native town and really national protests in the capital, Managua. And the result of that was persecution. So the Nicaraguan government began to arrest the opposition. Um, the U.S. has uh, released an, an international community, uh, have released a lot of reports on human rights violations that occur. So early on, I really saw the danger that opposing the government entailed. And eventually, uh, the situation got progressively worse, and I began to fear for my life. Uh, my whole family began to be targeted. With the unraveling of his hometown and what the United Nations Human Rights Commission called a dangerous spiral of violence and impunity with killings taking place daily and the threats made against him and his family, he knew he needed to leave. My family got information that the, the Kraglan police was targeting my family for uh, arrest or, or, or for murder. So um, as an unaccompanied minor, I was able to get a plane ticket. Um, I was my family was already preparing for that, so I was able to get on a plane and arrive to the United States. Uh, luckily, I have an aunt here who um, received me with open arms. But early on, I began the the process to apply for asylum. Um, I was able to get a, a lawyer who was friends with my family, who helped me a lot. Um, but I was 14 without speaking English when I had my first immigration interview. Uh, the process for applying for asylum is very complicated in the U.S. Uh, there are people who have spent decades, um, some people can spend you know, 10 years, and still be in the limbo without a decision on asylum. So early on, I filed my application uh, for withholding of, uh, withholding of removal on asylum on the grounds that the Nicaraguan government was persecuting me. Um, what that meant is that early on, I had to, early on here in the U.S., without speaking English, I had to start gathering evidence to prove my case. Um, a lot of news articles were very helpful, international reports, but I had to craft a narrative. I had to write my own story. And then I had to show up to an interview by myself, an, an interpreter, because I did not speak English at the time, and basically prove to the U.S. government why I was worthy of protection. Fortunately, Gabriel was able to get legal support for his case. But because immigration is handled through civil court, migrants do not have the right to a lawyer, and the courts do not provide one. 
since Gabriel was entering the immigration system as an unaccompanied minor, his case was considered an affirmative one. The law here in the U.S. says that all unaccompanied minors, regardless of how they enter the U.S., have affirmative cases. So their cases are not heard by an immigration judge, they're heard by an immigration officer in the immigration office. Um, a defensive case occurs when a person, an adult, um, is put in deportation procedures. So they are defending themselves, defending their case as to why they should stay. And that occurs in the uh, immigration uh, judge. It's an immigration hearing. And the main difference between the two is that the immigration hear is hearing is adversarial. So um, not only will you have to um, argue your own case, you're going to have someone who's going to be arguing against you on behalf of the government while you don't deserve asylum. Um, one of the main differences between the two is the fact that defensive cases have the highest denial rates. Affirmative cases do too, but um, in my opinion, affirmative cases tend to be a, a slightly more humane option for people. But nevertheless, like all applicants, Gabriel was saddled with the burden of proof. It was his responsibility, even as a minor, to find evidence and translate documents. This is an obstacle that can become insurmountable, even in affirmative cases. In the asylum system, the applicant has the burden of proof. <coughs> that means that it's not, not the government's responsibility, um, but the applicant's responsibility to collect their own evidence, um, collect their own country conditions evidence, and, and prove to the government with convincing evidence that what they're saying is true. And that's, you know, kind of problematic. Uh, a lot of times your testimony is all the only evidence that you have. But I was lucky to to have some evidence that my family started recording, like threats, um, newspapers that came out. I remember my house was vandalized and I was in the national news in Nicaragua. So those were kind of the evidence that I was able to draw from. As a 14 and, you know, eventually 15-year-old, that was very difficult because I barely knew the language. Asylum applicants are also responsible for producing their own country conditions reports, despite the fact that the government produces similar assessments themselves annually. Um, what that entails is looking at a lot of sources that are reputable that talk about the general conditions of your country. The goal of a country conditions report is to put your experience in context to in a way, say, hey, what this is happening is not necessarily uh, an outlier. It's the product of this, this, this challenges that already exist in this country that lay the, the foundation for this to happen. It's, it's uh, very complicated because a lot of time judges dismiss your evidence of, of the countries, and it really doesn't account for bias that exists. So if a judge um, feels a certain way about a country, that can really impact how they think about your country conditions. After a second interview with the United States Custom and Immigration Service officer, a full year after his first, Gabriel was granted asylum and started applying for his permanent residency, continuing his route through American bureaucracy. And Gabriel stays connected to his family and continues to support those still in Nicaragua or who sought refuge in Costa Rica. When I left and I came to the U.S., I felt like I was not done being an activist. I was not done... Um, raising my voice and I looked for ways to do that in, in, in exile because I was exiled and um, the Oscar Arias Foundation for Peace and Human Progress located in Costa Rica began to do a lot of work um, with refugees 
most refugees from Nicaragua went to Costa Rica. So um, they began to, to write human rights reports. They began to do interviews. They did uh, trials of consciousness, they called them. Um, they began to give people who were exiled a voice. And I was able to join, to join that work. Uh, I took the role of being a refugee ambassador. So I worked in multiple projects as a translator. So I would translate news stories. I would translate um, testimonies. I would help write reports. And I still do a lot of that work. Um, and I find that um, doing that type of work is as helpful as protesting in the streets. Um, because to me, what's important is giving people a voice. While Gabriel's story is just one of many paths to asylum, and his activism one of many powerful displays of resilience, it offers insights into the experiences of those who come to the United States and face a complicated, inaccessible immigration system. For WPRB, this has been Alan Plotz and Claire Kaneshiro. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next on News & Culture, Raina Koulibaly explores how fiber artistry has woven the lives of black women together for centuries. recording um so can you introduce yourself please yes my name is cameron easley i am the founder of not okay crochet club um and i'm a diversity equity and inclusion professional and a designer cameron and i share a lot in common we first met when i joined the not okay crochet club this is a bi-weekly virtual group for Black women who love fiber arts, whether it's crocheting, knitting, or what have you. So the idea for Not Okay came when I was having FaceTimes with my younger sister almost every single day talking about what was going on in the media, in our personal lives, and with work and everything that was stressing us out to the point where we were so burnt out and so overwhelmed that it just felt like every day was its own type of fresh hell, honestly. Not okay, we're not is spelled with a K, is Cameron's play on words. She wants to help others cope with life in the age of COVID. We would get on the phone and crochet just to do something with our hands and we're just like angrily, like quickly crocheting and just ranting about everything that's going on. Um, but at the end of the FaceTime, we felt so much better. It was very cathartic. And then we also were able to 
do something that we really liked and we have a finished product that um, is a great example of transmuting your negative energy and negative feelings into something positive and something productive. I feel like I understand this need on a personal level. My name is Reina Koulibaly, and I am a knitter, crocheter, and Gen Zer in doom scrolling remission. It is not an exaggeration to say that this art has changed my life. I wanted to create a space for people who also do that now using crochet and fiber arts as a form of stress relief and meditation um, to get those people, but also people who may not have considered it before. I first started crocheting when I found a hook in an old box at the beginning of the pandemic. Since then, I've probably done close to 100 projects, but I would say that more than the satisfaction of finishing a product, the most important thing that fiber artistry has done for my life is teach me mindfulness and patience. Crafting is used to carry, to carry a message, like mo a lot of art is. You know, it, it expresses how people feel, whether they're hurt, they're angry, they're sad, they're enraged. <laughs> it's a great platform for it. I think because it, 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 people feel connected to not just crafting, but what you actually create with the craft. It's using these crafts as a, as a means to put forth a message. And the more that you get into activism spaces, you see more art. <laughs> you know, you see more art because it's, it's the expression of the, of the people. That is Regine Sawyer. She's a crochet designer based in New York City and the founder of Stitches and Yarn, which is a small crochet fashion label. I've been crafting since I was about four years old. My mother and my aunts wanted to give their children something to do. And that was through teaching us how to do different crafts. So I learned how to uh, crochet. I'm an avid crocheter at this point. Um, taught me a little bit of knitting, but I didn't take to it. Um, spool knitting is something I also, I also do in my older age. Like we did a lot of different crafts. Like they wanted to keep us busy. I did be beading, things like that. So I was a crafty kid. I enjoyed doing those things. Like, yeah, the parents want to keep their, their kids <laughs> busy, but it's like, oh, I actually like this. Fiber arts have long been a form of expression for Black women in times of strife. They take time, commitment, and effort. It's not something you'll forget about in a few months. It's tangible, and it forces us out of the digital wormhole and into our hands. Being Black in America means a million and one different things. But my conversations with Regine and Cameron reminded me of a quote by a renowned African-American writer, activist, and radical feminist named Audre Lorde. And I feel that it really shows the historical importance of fiber artistry for African-American women. When we create out of our experiences as feminists of color, as women of color, we have to develop those structures that will help present and circulate our culture. With social media and with a lot of the instant gratification of media, there is no real wait time and there's no real, you know, working towards something. If you want to be entertained, you go on TikTok and you scroll for a few hours and it's like you're constantly going to be shown things that you like. So you can just do that. But for you, that doesn't actually feed you. That's consumption. For Black Americans, finding comfort in one another has always been and continues to be a way to ensure survival. What's so oh, important about using fiber 
is is the feel of it. It's the feel of something that is is so soft and so warm and it's just so meant to make you feel comforted. It's something about touching something and it has a message on it. It's like you you see the visual message. You're taking in, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example. You're taking the message that's on this quilted piece or crocheted piece and then you touch it and some but there's also comfort that comes with it like comfort in knowing that someone someone sees you and receives you the world consumes from the black community so much that the only way to balance out how much you're being taken from is to create something and like put something back in there. So once I shifted my my own lifestyle from one of constant consumption to consumption and creation, I feel so much more balanced out and I feel less drained. With each generation, new wisdom is cultivated and passed on. Art is one way of doing this. Of course, it's an act of rebellion. Of course, it's an act of liberation and revolution. You know, cause you're putting something together that listen, some folks don't even think we're talented enough to do. <laughs> there's that part, there's that part. There's a shared knowledge that wherever you are, this community will take care of you because you are one. At the end of the day, black is black is black. That is the first thing that other people will see. We're an integral part to this space is we're not an anomaly, we're not a fluke. Like we're here, we wanna make a living in our, in our artistry. And we also wanted people to know that we, we want more of us in the space. It comes together in every single way because I am hella black. I'm very black. I wear it on my chest, on my face, like everywhere. Oftentimes when you're in these spaces, you, you face a lot of disparity. Folks are white folks. We're just going to say white folks are not used to seeing your face. <laughs> you, you know, like, oh, you do this. But the truth is that fiber artistry has been part of the lives of black women in America for several centuries now. In doing research for this project, I have been able to find accounts of Black women using fiber artistry dating back to the 17th century. Using whatever scrap fabric was available, Black women have, for generations, stitched the realities of their lives into the cloth, ultimately sending a message. I don't have the access, but I have, I have the intelligence. I have the knowledge. I have the information that I can now dispense to you and dispense to others, and I'm still gaining gaining more and more knowledge about things so I can speak more clearly about them so I can be of service, more of service to my, to my communities. Today, there are still quite a few Black quilters who use this medium to express the pain of the Black community. Black stories are being woven together and their stories will not easily be erased. What does community care look like for Black women today? especially in the digital age, given that technology is now a ubiquitous part of American life. It's a hard question, and that's why I was so happy to meet Cameron. The Not Okay Crochet Club is a new take, a new iteration of an age-old practice, but its purpose remains the same. You don't have to fight for your right to exist. You don't have to prove to anyone that you deserve to do anything. You just exist. You just are who you are and you're worthy and valuable just like that. All you have is each other. All that you have is your community. Like uh, other folks will not see the merit in what you do until they, they see what you do. So let this be a rallying cry for any black woman out there 
looking for a place of solace, looking for some community, looking for something mindful, consider getting yourself a pair of knitting needles or a crochet hook, or even find out if there's a crafters guild in your area. And if you're lucky, you might find a passion for life, or even better, a sisterhood. This has been Reina Koulibaly. Thanks for tuning in. Public Art Program exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next on News & Culture, Malika J. Singh speaks about the importance of persistence in a marathon-length friendship. In fourth grade, I ran a 19 minute, 47 second mile. Well, I was supposed to be running a mile. In reality, I walked most of it and half-heartedly jogged every now and then when Coach Tony yelled at me and my best friend, who I'll call A, to pick up the pace. We were notorious for being the slowest runners in our class, or at least that's how we thought of it. I don't think anyone else really cared that much. We would exaggerate reports of hip pain or stomach cramps or leg soreness tapping into expectations of feminine fragility even before we could claim menstrual mishaps in our middle and high school years. If we were really putting in our best effort despite those mild ailments, we wouldn't be going at the exact same pace and making conversation about the drama of the day. Taking nearly 20 minutes to run a mile, we decided, was a radical reclamation of our time as young girls who were fitness averse. During recess every day, which we called playtime, we were often reading chapter books sometimes even going to the library to work on homework. It was elementary school. Things were not that serious. Nowadays, A is at school in the big city, going upstate for hikes and sending me Groupons for spin classes. I even go to the campus gym voluntarily for a morning yoga class or a quick run. Elementary school Malika and A would not recognize us. A gap year traversing the country via its national parks for her and a single year in ROTC for me transformed how we think about exercise. So too, I should add, did the standards for young women's bodies as we grow into adulthood. That first year of college was a dark time. I was planning on letting the military bankroll my education in exchange for putting my body into its reserves for eight years. A friend from high school who did track and field trained with me to get my two-mile time down to under 21 minutes, nearly doubling my pace since a decade earlier. For A, it wasn't a great time either. She loved the cross-country trip, but coming home after and having unstructured days for weeks on end was really tough for her. As much as I was floundering socially, many Princeton students were back on campus in the spring, but I stayed home, partially to avoid in-person ROTC training. A was isolated even more. I wasn't around our neighborhood anymore. I'd moved away after my first year of high school, but we called occasionally to commiserate. Last year, she arrived in NYC, and I touched down in suburban New Jersey. We were finally on the same coast. 
in the same metropolitan area even, although she would never claim New Jersey. We're both across the country from where we grew up together, and far from 20-minute miles, we seek out fitness. A enters a giveaway on Instagram and wins fancy workout pants for us, ones we'll actually use. Coach Tony wouldn't know what to do with us now. We've transformed. But one thing has remained more or less constant, our friendship. We have this cosmic tie of being born on the same day, albeit across the country from each other. It's a cute gimmick. We've had matching outfits, birthdays, birthday parties just for the two of us. And we call each other at the exact time we were born every year. Shout out A for waking up at 4.55 AM annually for me. In the July 10th, 2020 episode of their podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, Aminatu So and Ann Friedman offered this definition of big friendship. Big friendship is a bond of great strength, force, and significance that transcends life phases, geography, and emotional shifts. It is large in dimension, affecting most aspects of each person's life. It is full of meaning and resonance. A big friendship is reciprocal, with both parties feeling worthy of each other and willing to give of themselves in generous ways. A big friendship is active, hearty, and almost always a big friendship is mature. Its advanced age commands respect and predicts its ability to last far into the future. And when they are done reading that definition, Aminatu exclaims, we, we came up with a whole new term. I memorized this definition and repeated it to myself during that physical fitness test freshman year. As my arms shook toward the end of a two minute plank, as my legs ached as I finished out two miles, I heard Aminatu's triumphant exclamation in my head. I thought of A and all we had been through. I remembered how to motivate myself to run in elementary school and picture ice cream or my crush at the finish line. I know now what really kept me going was A's company, knowing I wasn't in it alone. From extreme levels of judgment when A first tried alcohol to going months without talking to each other at the heights of high school stress just because life got in the way, to crying at Penn Station this May when a rushed impromptu day in the city with A left me feeling unfulfilled, me and I have been through a lot, but I know this friendship has an ability to last far into the future because we are cosmically tied, because we love each other, because we both make the effort. A, I'll see you soon. Let's go for a run. For WPRB, I'm Malika J. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And finally, Alan Plotz and Claire Kaneshiro learn more about living and surviving in residential youth treatment centers 
commonly known as the treble teen industry. There were like a couple people running away every week, not successfully attempting to run away, but none of them got very far. The program was in the middle of the wilderness. That's Gabriel Wickline, who spent nine months at a residential treatment center for quote-unquote troubled teens. And the experience was, quite frankly, carceral. This week, we're talking about resilience. And part of that is hearing from young people who have been impacted by one kind of carceral system, the troubled teen industry. This is Claire Conishiro and Alan Plotz for WPRB 103.3 News and Culture. The troubled teen industry is a term used to describe a network of privatized, often for-profit, under-regulated residential youth facilities that operate primarily in the United States. It includes therapeutic boarding schools, residential quote-unquote treatment centers, wilderness programs, and drug rehab centers. I knew where I was going and when I was going, but a lot of people didn't. When Gabriel was 17, he and his parents jointly decided he should enter a residential treatment facility since he had stopped going to school due to social anxiety. They hoped that his mental health would improve with professional support. A lot of people got sent there without knowing that they were going to get sent there. Um, This company called Safe and Sound uh, uh, came and abducted them, a couple of early bodyguards uh, um, come into their room in the middle of the night um, and restrain them, put them in the back of a van. Things did not get easier. When I got there, uh, I, I noticed the, the security cameras everywhere. They took me into this room, um, this little cabin, um, and I asked, like, oh, wait, should I keep my phone and they were like no 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 so I I gave my phone to my parents um I told them goodbye and then I had to change uh into this this uniform this bright orange jumper which again I didn't realize at the time but it was like that for security reasons it's very easy to see somebody that's wearing a, a bright orange shirt out in the woods. It sticks out. As it turns out, the treatment did not improve for a while. In fact, the parallels between prison and the treatment became even more apparent. For the the first couple of days, um, I had to sit out on reflection um, and like write stuff about myself. Like there were these writing assignments that I had to do. And reflection was like solitary confinement. <laughs> that's that's the best way I can describe it, except it's not completely solitary because you're outside. Um, there's a staff that's like a couple feet away from you, but you're not allowed to talk to anybody. Nobody's allowed to talk to you. So it has its similarities. Um, and... So I had to sit out there. This form of isolation was linked with control. 
Gabriel was not permitted to contact anyone and was required to ask permission from the staff to do anything. Speak, move, go through a doorway, take care of himself. Whenever you go to the bathroom, you have to have a staff put their foot in the door. And then you have to count whenever you're in the bathroom. And that uh, was the case for almost the entire program. Uh, I think until you get to the fourth level, uh, whenever you go to the bathroom, you have to count loudly so that somebody can hear you. And the idea behind that was so that you couldn't throw up. Staff having that kind of power takes a toll. They had a lot of power over us because without them, we weren't allowed to sit or stand, go to the bathroom, talk to anybody. I couldn't, I couldn't function without somebody right next to me without getting in trouble. Um, and I, I mean, I think that level of control, um, when, when you have that much power over somebody, you can start to form this, um, uh, like, problematic uh I, I don't know what the word is it's it, it can it can turn you into kind of a tyrant um and some of the staff really were tyrannical they they lost sight of themselves um and abused their their power um to kind of satisfy like emotional um desires like if a resident made them angry they would punish them not because they'd broken a rule but because they made them angry and that was really a common theme like i i don't even know if I feel like that was kind of how the program was meant to work too. Like you had to make sure that you were keeping these staff happy because otherwise they would smite you down. The punitive nature of the program that frequently handed down punishments did not always do so with reason. One kid I remember, he was in level four. So he was about to graduate. Um, and he had graduated from high school uh, at this place. And after you graduate from high school, you can take like online college classes during the normal school time. And he was taking a music class. Um, there are actually a lot of aspiring uh, rappers <laughs> at that place. Um, and he, he was one of those. Uh, he, he was taking a, like a, some sort of rap music class. And uh, the, the staff that was there um, while he was doing his schoolwork one day made him, made him shut down the, uh, the computer and go on reflection because she thought that he was doing something inappropriate because there was like a picture of a black man on his screen. <laughs> 
Um, and in that situation, it really sucks that you, you can't talk back to the, the staff at all. Otherwise, you're just going to get in trouble more. So he had just had to go out and sit alone in the gazebo and, and do his time. And then he had to wait a couple of hours before he could talk to somebody and tell them the truth of the matter, which was that he was just doing his schoolwork. That's another instance of what they called, quote-unquote, reflection, a form of consequence that strikingly resembles solitary confinement. One couldn't help but notice the way that certain restrictions seemed racialized or stereotyped. You weren't allowed to make any references to drugs. Um, and the, the program decided that um, any rap music is like somehow inherently tied to drugs. And so you weren't allowed to listen to drug to rap music at all um, when you were allowed to listen to music. Uh, and you weren't allowed to reference um, like rap music icons either, which is, of course, like very racist. What's powerful about this story is the persistence of student creativity. As Gabriel mentioned before, a lot of students were interested in rap music. In fact, our intro music was written by one of the rappers Gabriel met at the Residential Treatment Center, Nate Powers. We got to sit down with him as well and learn more about his music and the experiences that inspired it. Um, it was the only thing that I could do. It felt like there was a lot of times where, I mean, the rest of the day, you're just working. You know, there's not really anything you can do. You're just being disciplined and works and being told what you're doing wrong. Uh, it really just comes down to, like, music was the only escape I had in my environment. I had nothing else that brought me joy except for music. And I already was very, very attached to music. It was already my thing, but I think that that experience just really cemented it as my like therapeutic escape. The music you heard during the intro and that will take us out again at the end of the segment is part of Nate's big upcoming project. It was written almost entirely while he was restricted within the residential treatment center. I think that I have a lot of emotional things going on in my life. And, you know, I always have. This project just really showcases the way that I'm really feeling, the way that I think a lot of other people are feeling. And its sole purpose is to help other people who feel the same way that I do. Facilities like these still operate, albeit with a new set of teens, as the students Gabe met there continue on with their lives. Gabriel is now in college. And I'm a basketball coach. Um, and then in a year or so, I'm going to transfer to a, a four-year college. A bunch of my friends um, uh, have relapsed. Um, some of them are, are back in treatment. Um, some of them aren't. Some of them are in college. Um yeah, I, I think most of them are doing pretty good, though. You know, a lot of people, they, they, they get out. Um, and the, the program has this idea that you're going you're gonna to leave and you're going to stop doing drugs. That's like their big goal. Um, but for a lot of people, that's not what they want to do. Um, 
it, maybe it's not realistic or maybe, maybe it's just not how they want to live their lives. One thing that we struggle with is the lack of data on the graduates of these programs. How many go on to other treatment centers? How many end up in colleges? There was one kid that had been in like 12. Um, and they, they, they did not want to be in another one, but um, their parents, for whatever reason, thought that the 13th time was the charm. Even when teens turned 18, it didn't guarantee freedom. You could sign yourself out at 18, but fear-mongering tactics led people to stay. My therapist told me that uh, even if I chose to leave, um, my parents could like contest that and take me to court. And then um, the judge could rule that I was not fit to uh, live on my own um, and send me back. And then I would have to stay there. Um, I, I think that happens to uh, some people like, oh, there's some celebrity singer. That's Britney Spears, of course. Even with these restrictive environments, Gabriel experienced periods of joy and lasting friendships too. For uh, like nine months. Um, and so even though I wasn't allowed to talk to them very often, um, over time, I was able to like make friends. I mean, it's hard to be friends with like specific people there because you're always together which I kind of liked. Um, there weren't like people that were just friends with each other. It was like we were all together. And after many months, Gabriel was moved up to a different campus where things started looking up also. Before then, I'd only been off campus like once or twice to go to the doctor. That was like the most exciting thing in the world to leave that little area of woods and go to Belfast. Um, I got to go to Wendy's. That was so crazy. Tasting the, the milkshake at Wendy's after eating like the oatmeal and whatever oven baked chicken <laughs> for so long. Having fast food was so exciting. They didn't, they didn't serve dessert except on holidays and birthdays. But even for Gabriel, there aren't easy answers. It's very easy to sit here and like talk about all the awful things that they've done. It's, it's a lot harder to actually come up with a system that works. Um, I mean, the thing that I've thought, like if my children are struggling with mental health issues in this way, um, I think, I would try to do my own program at home um, because I, I would not trust, uh, honestly, a bunch of untrained strangers 
let's continue to think about what alternatives to carceral frameworks can look like. For WPRB, this is Claire Kaneshiro and Alan Plotz. Now let's have Nate Powers take us out again with Feel Like I'm Falling. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Alan Plotz, Claire Kaneshiro, Raina Koulibaly, Malika J. Singh, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McQueenie, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Other songs in this episode include DGC by Valentin Sonsonitsky, My Thoughts by Jonathan Dimmel, and Feel Like I'm Falling by Nate Powers. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton. Community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.